0: Okay, let's get started here this morning. We have a lot to cover today, and it's all exciting. I know you're all going to want to hear it. You have to watch your book budget today for sure. Recommending lots of books. I like books. I actually have a book giveaway, but I'll wait till all the late shows get in here before we do the giveaway here. All right, we've been looking at the Puritan movement, and I covered all that last week. So today is a guide to the Puritans. I'm going to select a few, some of my favorites, some that have had the biggest impact, and even talk about some of their books that you might consider reading to grow in godliness. That's where the Puritans are a big help today, is helping us grow in godliness. It's not just looking back on church history. that, That is interesting and fun to learn, but we're at a stage in church history where people are writing a lot. The printing press is up and running well. Books are being written and sold in their day. And still today, a lot of these books are still in print, so we can be blessed by it as well. Let me open in prayer, and then I'll go through these. Lord, we do thank you for our time this morning, just to be here is a joy. It is a, a grace just to gather together and study and, and think about church history. Thank you for the Puritans. Let us be Puritans in our day, as we seek to live by the Word, to worship by the Word, to believe what it is that the Word says. Help us to purify our lives according to Scripture so we might be more like Christ. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, a guide to the Puritans. So we covered the whole movement last time. I said it started in about 1560. It goes to about 1680. This is a time of persecution. Coming out of Bloody Mary's persecution, you have Elizabeth I, and she allows some freedom of worship for a time. So the Puritan movement really gets rolling. And the Puritan movement is to purify the Anglican Church. There's only one church in England. It's the Anglican Church. It's not really reformed all the way. It's partially reformed. We might think of it as part Catholic, part reformed. And the Puritans wanted to go all the way with it and get it fully reformed like they were doing in Geneva, like they were doing in Zurich, like they were doing in the Dutch countries, like they were doing in many areas. But they did not get to do that because of persecution. And when the persecution stopped, the movement kind of faded away. And you do have others. There's a debate. You know, I think recently I was talking with somebody. Who's the last Puritan? You know, Is it 1680 roughly? Or is it Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s? Or Charles Spurgeon? Or some will say Martin Lloyd-Jones was a Puritan. And some even say today you have men like R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur who are Puritans. So technically the movement's over by the end of the 1600s. But there are men who stand in that, in those shoes, we might say, later on in history. And we'll get to them. But today, I just want to cover the period that we've already looked at and recommend some resources. There's really two resources on this screen that help you understand the whole movement. One is Meet the Puritans, a guide to modern reprints. Basically, everything I'm going to tell you today comes from Meet the Puritans in some way. This is Joel Beakey and a friend of his, Randall Peterson, who went through and wrote little biographies. They updated it a few years ago. I think it came out early 2000s and the update a couple of years ago. And this is two, three page biography. It tells you about the person, you know, where they were born, who they got married to, but particularly their ministry. And the nice thing is at the end of the biography, it tells you all the books that they wrote that, got, that went to print. And so many of these are still in print today. And he will say, published today by, and it'll tell you. So, this is really neat, a resource, a reference work to have on hand. I used it for this class. I use it anytime time I get out, let's say a new Puritan I haven't read in a while, I just go over this quick biography. Another one is a quote book, really, illustrations and meditations on Puritan quotes that C.H. Spurgeon put together. Spurgeon has great titles, Flowers from a Puritan's Garden. And so this is just good to get acquainted with some of the better quotes some of the best quotes from the Puritans. Spurgeon also put together another assortment of quotes from one particular Puritan that we'll look at later. On your right here is the Puritan documentary. came out three, four years ago now. It's a two-hour documentary that Joel Beaky and others put together. And if you buy the DVD set, there's also classes on specific Puritans and issues in the Puritan movement. I think you can Watch this maybe on Amazon Prime and some other places online. I'm not sure. But if you want to support the ministry who did it, you can go to their website. Most of these resources I'm going to mention today, we either have it in the bookstore or you can ask there and they'll put it on a wish list and we can get it. Uh, But not the documentary. You can just grab that uh, on your own there on the website. So I hope you're ready. Choose Here's my recommendation. Find a Puritan that, that sort of draws you that you would like to learn more about and read up on them. Or if a book that I recommend today stands out, or two or three, make a list, start with those. I will have some recommendations on where to start. Don't think you have to get every single book that's going to be on these slides, although that's not bad if you do. We won't say you're idolizing books or anything. It's just for later reference, right? People always come to my house or when I have my books in order at the church, how many of these have you read? And I said, that's not what matters. What matters is how many am I going to read and their reference works that I can pull off the shelf. So if I want to see what John Owen said on the glory of Christ, there it is. And it's really nice if they have a scripture reference in the back. I don't think the, the Puritan paperbacks do. But All right, let's start with Richard Baxter. We're just going to go in alphabetical order, not in chronological order. We're not going in importance order, just alphabetical, I think, mostly. Richard Baxter, 1615 to 1691. His father was converted to Christianity after living a life as a drunkard. So Richard is very young. And these are just short little biographical snippets. I'm not going to tell you all the, where he was born, how old he was at this point in his life. These are just the, uh, the important facts that we need to know. His father's conversion took place early in his life. That resulted in Richard's own personal conversion because of the spiritual talks his father would have with him. So again, we see examples of this throughout church history You see it today where fathers get converted, mothers get converted. They talk to their children about that faith, about repentance, about the gospel. And that leads to their children's salvation. And this happened with Richard Baxter. Because even though it's Christian England, not everybody's actually saved. And so we have his father getting saved, then he gets saved. And he was impacted by a book from another Puritan named The Bruised Reed. The Puritan is Richard Sibbs. We're going to talk about Sibs today. But the bruised reed had an impact on his life at 15. So it's never too young. Well, maybe if you're like under 10, probably too young to read the Puritans. But after that, I know Sinclair Ferguson, a preacher alive today, said that he read the Puritans very early. Joe Beakey read them, I think, when he was 14, struggling with this issue of assurance of his salvation. He goes into his father's library, starts reading the Puritans, he decides, hey, I'm going to start selling books to people. Now he has a huge book service online, Reformation Heritage Books. So Baxter worked as a teacher for a long time. Then he becomes an assistant pastor in a town called Kidderminster, And that's he'll he'll do most of his ministry. But he gets called away. Remember, there's an English Civil War when Parliament is fighting against the forces that the king has. So it's Parliament, which is mostly Puritans, against the Royalists. For the King, that are mostly Anglicans, Parliament wins, but Baxter and many of the Puritans will go off to be chaplains in the Civil War. His health got pretty bad during the war, and his nose was bleeding a lot, and so he thought he was about to die, and he said, i got to write one thing before I die." Basically, he said, "I've got to do it." So he writes this huge book, "The Saint's Everlasting Rest: The Saint's Everlasting Rest." Published it in 1650 after the war was over. But he went on to write 168 books. 168. So this guy was, was prodigious. He, he wrote a lot. He spent a lot of time thinking about the word during his ministry. He went back to Kidderminster, And he pastored. And after his health had been restored, he was there from 47 to 60. So the famous thing about Richard Baxter is when he got there, the town was, you know, partying it up, living the worldly lifestyle, the cultural Christian lifestyle. And he starts preaching, and he preaches hard. He's the one who said, we have to preach as a dying man to dying men. And he preaches the gospel. And then he says, I'm going to show up at your house this week. I'm going to ask you some questions about doctrine. I'm going to ask you if you understand the gospel. And this is called catechizing. Usually it's, it's done from parent to child or Pastor a child but in this case he would go catechize the parents and make sure they understood and then he would turn to the children and ask them questions and he did this as his church grew he had 800 families so he's the pastor of the only church for the whole town in Kidderminster. there and 800 families he did it. it got so hard for him to get around to everybody once a year that he had to hire an associate pastor to help him and between the two they can make it to 800 families and he did that every Monday and Tuesday, 14 to 15 families a week. So they have us read his book on the Reformed pastor in seminary. And all the seminary students, you know, they pull their hair out. It's like, how can I get to that many people? And Times have changed, and we have a lot of other things that we do. But uh, Baxter's pretty, pretty hard on the fact that this needs to happen. He says, I have to do this. And by the time he leaves his ministry there, Every family in their house was doing family worship. That's another thing he would ask the father. Are you doing family worship? And then if the dad said no, he said, you better do it or you're going to be brought up on church discipline. You better start teaching your kids and singing hymn with them and just reading a passage at least. And if you don't do that, it might be church discipline time. And so they all did it. So he says, basically, when he came to town, you could hear from every window of the house because everybody had their windows open during the warm season. You would hear, you know, all kinds of revelry and sinful stuff. And by the time he left, because he had to leave, he heard a hymn being sung from every house as he left the town. So that's that's how he phrased it. Baxter, later in life, he spent much of his time in and out of prison for preaching the gospel. So he would go to prison, as many Puritans did, because he preached the gospel. We have people today starting to go to jail again because they preach the gospel when the government says they shouldn't. So he went in and out of jail. He spent a couple of of weeks even with his wife there. He did eventually get married later in life, and his wife was even in prison for a while. He dealt with constant pain all during his life, including TB. Many people think he had TB. On his deathbed, a friend was trying to comfort him by reminding Baxter of all the good his writings brought people. And his response was, I was but a pen in God's hand, and what praise is due to a pen. So he died in 1691. So that was a man who wrote a lot of good works. He saw himself rightly. Now he did have a couple of erroneous views that you need to watch for. You probably don't have to worry about it cuz these views aren't even these books aren't in print anymore. But he had some views on justification that are, we'll just say, confusing and sanctification. He often mixed the two more than he should. And so he wasn't all that reformed or Calvinistic when it came to those things. And it's, it's controversial today, not, not as if, when you say controversial in the scholarly world, that doesn't mean people are hitting each other in the face. It means that they argue and debate it and write papers and books on it. Because his teachings could serve to undermine salvation by grace alone through faith alone. So he talked about this idea that, that sanctification may play a part in our justification, And so there's some confusion there. J.I. Packer's written a lot on Baxter. Packer loved Baxter, but said, you need to be careful for that. And most of those works, he has all these works, the whole works of Baxter. Most of them aren't in print today, only the ones that don't deal with justification. So there's Kitterminster there. They even put up a statue later of him preaching there right outside the church. So that's the actual church building that he preached in. So here's some recommended books to read. The Reformed Pastor is good, particularly if you have any desire to go into ministry. It's a good little Puritan paperback. Dying Thoughts is good. Thoughts that that people have when they're dying and and thoughts they ought to be having. These are both short little reads. The Saint's Everlasting Rest was his big work. And that's a fat book. It really is. The, The blue one there is what it looks like in the more modern, heartbound And then that purple one is on Audible. That's a great Audible narrator that goes through that. I've told many people to listen to The Saint's Everlasting Rest if you have an Audible account. It's not always easy to listen to theological works as you're driving down the road or doing housework. You can't double speed this for sure if you're a double speeder. Don't even think about it. You're going to miss most of it. This is a single speed type of work. It's always, I think, better for theological Works to read them in print because you can see the outline and the structure. But I did listen to the Saints' Everlasting Rest, and it, it's really good by James Patrick Cronin. It's been said, and I've never really checked this this claim, but it's been said everybody had the Bible, especially the Puritans who came to America. They had the Bible, then they had Pilgrim's Progress, and then the third book in their library was the Saints' Everlasting Rest because it's all about heaven, and then there's a lot in it about the people going to hell, and it just it will pull at your heartstrings for those who are lost. He does such a great job of preaching the gospel in that book. It's about 800 pages, I think, or 30 hours if you listen to it. But don't double speed it. 1.3 at most, okay? I experimented with it. 1.3 at most. All right, next one. Thomas Boston. Thomas Boston's a little bit later. He, he's sort of a child when the Puritan era ends, but he's mostly included. Thomas Boston, 1676 to 1732. he saved at the age of 11 under another Puritan, Henry Erskine. And he walked four to five miles every Sunday to hear his preacher that, that he was saved under that ministry to hear him preach. So, you know, sometimes we drive four or five miles and think that's a lot. He would walk, as many people did in those days. You went to the church in town or maybe the Independent church. Maybe you didn't want to go to the Anglican church. You had to walk 10 miles just to get to the independent church. After being licensed in the Presbyterian church, he was called by a small parish in Simpron to preach in 1699. It was a spiritually impoverished church when he arrived, being largely ignorant of scriptural truth. So this is a little bit different than the other guys we're going to talk about. There's a couple of Presbyterian men, men who are preaching in Scotland. And they serve in the Presbyterian church. They're not necessarily bound by the Anglican rules in the common book of prayer. But the king is often the same king of Scotland and England. And so sometimes they will come under persecution. Just like the, the Puritans did in England. So here's a younger drawing of him. Within one year of being at that church, he would have, he already was up to two Sunday services and he taught from the shorter catechism to the people. He led the public worship on Thursdays. He visited the congregation in their homes. After seven years, all the families had family worship in their homes. So today, this may not seem like a big deal, but back then, it was a huge thing. People weren't leading their families. Dads weren't leading. Fathers weren't leading spiritually their families. And it's still that way today, of course, but we've had a bit of a Reformed resurgence and the family worship and men leading is at least talked about today. After pastoring that flock for some time there, he moved on to a bigger village, Ettrick. It was a spiritually barren town that was difficult to travel to. And he stayed there for 16 years. Let's talk a bit. I'll mention all these guys pretty much were married. There's one that wasn't. I don't always mention their wives, but I will sometimes if it's important. He married Catherine Brown. She suffered from depression and insanity. He had 10 children with her, but only four would survive him. This is going to be a common theme with the Puritans or anybody in this era. But as these men are writing, you're going to see sometimes in their writing how hard it is to watch their children die over and over, children dying before them. He was involved, Boston was, in what's called the Marrow Controversy. And the Marrow Controversy was an issue over legalism, versus antinomianism. Legalism is adding things to your salvation or even your sanctification, your, your justification, your sanctification, just adding man-made laws or being too harsh on Christians for what they do, not giving Christian liberty. And antinomianism is just doing what you want. You don't care what the Bible says. You know We're free. We're free in Christ to do whatever we want. We can sin. God forgives us. So there was a a book that he wrote, The Marrow of Modern Divinity, or Edward Fisher wrote the book, an earlier Puritan guy. And Boston said, look, this book is good. And the Presbyterian Church in Scotland was saying, no, 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 because they were, the the Presbyterian Church at that time was more legalistic. And they said, this book is antinomian. And so Boston stood up and he defended it and, and it really cost him a lot of friendships and the denomination was not very happy with him. But he defended its proponents, saying that they were trying to keep from the error of legalism. They misunderstood the book. So he dies in 1732. After his death, a lot of the people who agreed with him, called the Men, said, this is a big enough issue. We have to leave the Church of Scotland. So just like in all denominations, you see continued separating and starting a new denomination. Many times in this, in this period, it's a good thing, they decided to leave and form their own denomination. I, th- I think it was a Free Church of Scotland, if I recall. He wrote many books and sermons contained in this massive set, the complete works. All of these guys have complete works. If you want to look them up and invest in them, that's great. I wouldn't do that until you read at least a little book by them. Don't get the, you know, eight volumes of Boston unless you want to invest the time to read some of that. His most famous works are The Art of Man Fishing, A Puritan's View of Evangelism, Church Communion, and probably the most famous is The Crook in the Lot. If you want to know more about the Merrill Controversy, Sinclair Ferguson loves to talk about this. He's written on it. He's talked on it. He even put it in a book that came out a few years ago called The Whole Christ. In other words, when you you accept Christ, You're not just saying, oh, he's my savior. He justified me. But you are going to live a Christian life. And you can see the subtitle. I'll read it to you. Legalism, Antinomianism, and Gospel Assurance. Why the Marrow Controversy Still Matters. Yes, you know, we have to see fruit in a Christian's life. But we also have to be careful what we expect to see and how we phrase that. And what we expect a believer to live like. And then here's a cover of his best little work, The Crook and the Lot. What to believe when our lot in life is not health, wealth, and happiness. I mean, this is in the 6, 1700s. That's before the prosperity gospel as we know it today. And he's already talking about the lot in life, the lot that God has given you. How, How to be thankful and have joy in life, even when you don't have all the things that the world often holds up as something important. Thomas Brooks, Thomas Brooks, 1608 to 1680. He's born into a Puritan family, so his parents are already in the Puritan movement. And he's a nonconformist preacher, which means he does not agree with the Anglican church, and he's even willing to to separate. He's ordained in 1640, serves for some years as a chaplain to the parliamentary fleet. And he says about that time, he says, I have been some years at sea. And through grace, I can say that I would not exchange my sea experiences for England's riches. In other words, he appreciated that time at sea. It taught him a lot. Most of us probably can look back on our past. And, and sometimes there's things we don't, we don't want to talk about or we don't like. But in the end, that was God's providence. And he was teaching us lessons there that we can now look back and see. After the Civil War, he becomes the miniature, miniature, minister of the church in St. Thomas the Apostle, Queen Street in London. And he was often called to preach before Parliament. And 1650, he becomes the rector, which is a higher office in the Anglican Church, in St. Margaret's. And that's New Fish Street Hill, again, still in London. The first church that burned to the ground in the Great Fire of London in 1666. So there was a great fire. It burned much of the city. It was right after a year-long plague. So it was a very rough time there. And many of the Puritan pastors, this is what sort of endeared the people to the Puritans, is that the Puritan pastors stayed during the plague, and they stuck around after the fire. Whereas the Anglicans, that were more of the, the royalist mindset, they bailed. Plagues hit the city, let's get out of here. And the Puritans were sticking with their congregations and ministering to them, even through all the death that was going on there. So there he is there with his older, you know, it's, it's interesting to watch. Well, I don't have a younger picture of him. I might. Let's see. No. Nope. There's his, his older drawing there. They would put this sometimes on the front cover, the first page when you open the book. He was a congregationalist, and so he wanted the church to move towards a congregational form of government. He didn't want, in other words, the hierarchy of the Anglican system with the the archbishop and the rectors and the vicars and and the bishops. He thought that each church should have its own church government led by elders. This was called the congregational movement. And he fell victim to the act of uniformity. Remember, uniformity said you have to worship, you have to run the church according to the Book of Common Prayer. If you can't sign a document stating that, then you're out of here. You're no longer a pastor in any of the Anglican churches. Well, he continued preaching in London, even though that was an issue. He lost basically his pastorate, but he still preaches. People could, could slip you into their church to preach. You're just called a lecturer. So today, we don't have Pastor So-and-so or Dr. So-and-so. We have a lecturer coming to preach this afternoon, so make sure y'all come back. And then he would just come preach the, the sermon that he would have preached if he was in the morning service. They took away his license in 1676 because he had continued to preach. And in 1680, he's he died and he's buried in a famous cemetery there called Bunhill Fields. It's where the nonconformists would have to be buried. So that's a big thing in the ancient world. Where's your body going to be buried? And you needed to have a cemetery. It went with your faith, with your religion. So if you were an Anglican, you could be buried inside the city limits. But if you were not, if you had rejected the common book of prayer, they would kick you out and then say, when you're, dead, you've got to be buried outside the city wall at the time. And it's called Bunhill Fields. A lot of famous Puritan pastors are buried there. Some books to get. So here's Spurgeon again. Smooth Stones from Ancient Brooks. I mean, isn't that great? He, he makes a play on the name there. Smooth Stones from Ancient Brooks, Thomas Brooks. And he, he's got quotes in there. It's a little Puritan paperback that just gives you The best of the best quotes from Thomas Brooks. Probably his most famous work, and the one that I really recommend you read Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Satan's always trying to. I just dropped out. Satan's always trying to attack us. He's trying to tempt us. He's trying to trick us. And so Brooks gives us some help with that. He gives us some remedies, and they're not just remedies, but they're precious remedies against Satan's devices. Also, I, I put this paperback on here, Puritan paperback, An Ark for All God's Noahs. I mean, these guys have a great way of, of putting their titles up. All God's Noahs, in a gloomy, stormy day. You can already get a sense of how they're, they're warming the spirit, how they're encouraging. Heaven on earth, Thomas Brooks talks about assurance, how we can have assurance in this life. And that's what heaven on earth is all about. So these are some of the Puritan paperbacks. The Puritan paperbacks bring out the best of his works from an author and then put them in these little paperback forms, and they update the language just a little bit so you don't have to struggle as much with it. If you go back and buy like the, the whole set of Thomas Brooks, you're going to get the original, the way he wrote it. Maybe a couple of letters are changed, like that weird S thing that looks like an F at this time. But for the most part, it's what he wrote. With slight updates, the Puritan paperbacks go a little further and update it, make it easier for us. Anybody read Brooks, Boston, or Baxter? Nobody? Okay. Anybody read Bunyan? I know we had a Pilgrim's Progress. Who's read Pilgrim's Progress? Yeah? Good. So John Bunyan, he's really a mountaintop of the Puritan writings. Well-known, great preacher, great writer. 1628 to 1688. So just think in, what is that, 60 years? You know, he can get so much done in 60 years. So for those of you who are 60 or above, you know, you've got to get busy because we're going to talk about all he did in his 60 years. He was not educated. All these other guys, I hadn't even mentioned it, but they go to Cambridge. They go to Oxford. When Parliament takes over and they they oust the king or or chop off his head and, and sort of make the whole country Puritan, Oxford and Cambridge are now Puritan training centers And men go there to get trained for ministry. There are seminary and college and Christian university all wrapped in one. Well, Bunyan didn't have that opportunity. He didn't have the money. He only had about two to four years of, we might call, childhood education. His parents died. His two sisters died when he was 16. So around that time, he's serving in the army for three years during the Civil War. And during this time, John Bunyan witnessed the death of the man who volunteered to go into battle in his place, thus inadvertently saving Bunyan's life. That really impacted him because here he was about to go into battle. A guy steps up, volunteers for his slot, and that man gets killed. And he realizes how precious life is. He had had sort of just been living his own rebellious life. You know, he lost my parents, going into the army, living it up. And now he's realizing, look, life is short. So after the war, he becomes a tinkerer, and he's making and repairing things made out of light metal. So he's the guy that would fix your pots and pans when they broke. Come to your house, you know, bang on the pan and get it all fixed up. Your your tools, anything made of tin or just something light, they were called tinkerers who did that. And he did this up until the time he was a soldier. He did that also after the war. And people looked down upon that. This is like in the biblical times, a shepherd is very lowly. They're out there. With a sheep, well, a tinker, you know, that's that's very common. That's you know, this this is lower than a plumber, right? This is a guy who is out there just fixing pots and pans. And we have all these educated people in England, and especially our pastorate is very educated. Who's this guy who tries to start preaching? That's a tinker. He marries a woman named Mary, and also later he'll have a blind daughter named Mary, probably after his first wife here. Mary's only possessions were two books left to her by her father. So before his conversion, Bunyan had a very strong propensity towards swearing. He's married now. He's swearing it up. He, he's just living as a cultural Christian. And so leading up to his conversion, he had an increased awareness of his unbiblical life. It just becomes obvious to him he's not living according to Scripture. And he thought maybe he had committed the unpardonable sin. So if you read his sort of biography, which I'll mention in a minute, autobiography, this is a big issue for him. And he thinks, I've committed the unpardonable sin. I can't be saved. I'm living such a wretched life. What do I do? What do I do? During this time, and while he's playing a game called Cat, he was sure he heard the Lord ask him, wilt thou leave thy sins and go to heaven or have thy sins and go to hell? So you can see the consciousness and the awareness, the guilt he feels. He even thinks he's hearing things during this little game where they're calling out words and he's feeling like God is going to judge him. He's then converted and there's not a lot about that exact instance but he's converted. Then he's baptized into the Bedford Baptist Church in the year 1653. So this is the first Baptist that we've looked at. He's, He's joining a church that practices believers baptism like we do. He had already been infant donked or sprinkled. I think they sprinkled, yeah. And then uh, later he, he gets converted. He gets baptized. 1653. This is also the church he'll end up serving in. 1655 was a big year for him. Both his wife and his mentor died, which his mentor had immersed him into deep, this death, sorry, had immersed him into deep anguish, affecting even his health. Also the year that he began to preach after having been elected as a deacon with success in from the outset. So he's called to be a deacon. He decides, look, I'm going to go preach out on the street corner. I'm going to preach any opportunity they give me in church. And it's a a hard time for him because of the deaths in his family. He does end up remarrying. He has a, a blind daughter. He struggles to provide for his family, but I'll tell you why that is in a moment. Before his conversion—he had this huge propensity towards swearing, but that goes away instantly. His life is changed. He's not the man he once he once was. And right off the bat, he says the Quakers really annoy me. The Quakers—they were—they were the charismatics of the day. They they heard God speak and they would they would shake and they would quake, and they had women preachers even in the 1600s, and they would just go around doing some strange things. They didn't have churches. They had meeting houses and such. So he, he pub- published something against them. He attacked the Quakers on their reliance of the inner light rather than relying on the Bible. So now we're at the time of Charles II. He's come back. He's been brought back. This is Charles I's son. After the P- Puritan era, he's, he comes back and he takes over. He sets all these laws into effect that are going to make it really hard for Puritans. He eventually ejects them from their churches if they're in the Anglican church. And so Bunyan is going to suffer because he's preaching. Even though it's a Baptist church, he is preaching sometimes outdoors. And even in his church, there's this pressure. So he's arrested in 1660 while preaching privately and in prison for three months. Privately means it's in a private setting. It's not. He wasn't outdoors or even in the church. But remember, the king had said, no Puritan preaching. That's, that's a, a political issue. I don't need another revolt like my father had where he lost his head. So Bunyan is in prison for a total of 12 years. Now, he's there for a while, and then he's let out, and then he goes back. But if you add it all up, it's 12 years he spends in prison for preaching the word. His prosecutor was allegedly hesitant to even incarcerate him. But John insisted, if you release me, I will preach tomorrow. You let me out today? I'll be out there preaching tomorrow. That was the whole thing with him. All he had to do was say he wouldn't preach, and they would let him go. And he said, here's the truth. I'll be preaching tomorrow. So this comes up a lot. About a year ago, when was it James? What was his last name in Canada? James Coates gets put in jail for preaching. And all of a sudden, you see all these bunion quotes going around, which I'll show you some more in a minute, because he was just showing up to church preaching on Sunday. They don't arrest everybody in the church. They arrested James Coates, the pastor, and he served 30 days, 60 days in jail? 60 days, I think, before they let him out. They just let him out. They just said, uh, okay, we're going to let you go now. Well, here's Bunyan in and out of jail for 12 years. He said, I'll stay in prison till the moss grows on my eyelids rather than disobey God. And there's even, you can read accounts where his wife would come and see him. and You know, it wasn't like jail today, although jail today is sort of a resort in many places. He had a desk. He had books. He could write. He could have visitors come into the cell. They would give him money. And so he writes during this time. But he tells them, look, if you let me out, I'm going to go preach. And they eventually would let him out. Then he'd go preach. Then I'd stick him back in jail. And he said, I'll just stay in prison because I can't disobey God. I'm a preacher. I'm a pastor. I have to preach the word. I'm called to do it. Well, that's probably good for us because while he's there, not so good for him to be in jail, but it's all in God's providence because he writes The Pilgrim's Progress. The second most popular book in Christianity, at least up until modern times, after the Bible, is The Pilgrim's Progress. Now, this book made him the best well-known nonconformist. He doesn't conform to the Anglican church. He's part of a separate church called the Bedford Baptist Church. And he's arguably one of the best allegories this book has ever written. Many of the uses in the story come from images in his own world. Even the characters are in some cases reflections of people he knew. So if you read it and then you read about his life, you can see where he got some of those characters. He was able to support his family by ministering to a group inside the prison, a prison ministry, who then gave him money because the families would give to their kinfolk in prison, who then could buy food and resources. And so they would give him a little money so he could support his family. His wife would come see him. Even his daughter, who's blind, they would come in. And they would just say, you know, why? Why do you stay in here? You could be out. And he would just tell his wife, you know, I have to, I have to preach. That's what I have to do. That's what I'm called to do. And she understood, but it was also a hard time for them. His possessions while in prison included two books. He had John Fox's Book of Martyrs, which we talked about, and the Bible. He had a violin that he made out of tin because he could do that. He was a tinker and a flute that he made out of a leg of a chair and an inexhaustible supply of pen and paper. That was it. He writes this massive, awesome work called Pilgrim's Progress. Very influential, very influential on Christianity, especially Reformed Christianity since he wrote it. So there was the, the cover page. You would open the hard back, and there it is. And so it starts out that he's, he's having a dream in his cell, and he dreams this dream, and then it starts a story. You see that, see that F-looking thing, Pilgrim's Progress? If it's an S before the end of the word, it looked kind of like our F today. So that's where a lot of the works that you can buy today have corrected that, because it's, well, I won't say corrected, they've changed it so we can read it faster. The Pilgrim's Progress from this world to that which is to come, delivered under the similitude of a dream, wherein is discovered the manner of his fetting out, his dangerous journey, and safe arrival at the desired country by John Bunyan. The third edition with editions. So this was the kind of title that a Puritan, That's that's kind of short for a Puritan book. It needs to be about four more sentences to be a real Puritan, because that's the advertisement for the book. You're in the bookshop, you open the cover, let's look at this, what's this book about? And they would just stuff a lot of words on that page to tell you what the book was about. So here's some images. I think most of these are from the original, the drawings that they included in there. There's the pilgrim caught by giant despair. If you haven't read it, you really should. Get, get the modern edition first, unless you just love to read older writing. Get the modern edition. That's, that's what we carry here. Then if you decide to read it again, you can go back. We we did the older edition with the family and I think some of the kids were too young to appreciate the more King James type of language. So get the modern edition, read that one first. Here's Christian before the cross when his burden falls off his back. Here he is fighting Apollyon. He's got by this time he's got his armor. The armor of God on. So just great pictures, great allegories of actual teachings and scripture and you can even get Pilgrim's Progress where it has all the verses at the bottom and citations that he's using there. His possessions while in prison already went over this slide so he's released in 1672 when Charles II issued a new declaration and the same month of his release he becomes the pastor of St. Paul's church and May 9th 1672 he receives one of the first licenses to preach under the new law. So he's let out of jail. He's given, okay, you've got a license to preach. There's some freedom right now. But he's imprisoned again in 1675 for six months because Charles II changed his mind. He said, You know, I changed my mind. There's too much freedom with these Puritan preachers. I'm withdrawing that declaration. And he's not again in prison after this, due to his popularity. He's so popular with Pilgrim's Progress. He's a popular preacher. And so the people won't allow for it. Now the king has to decide, okay, is this guy a big enough issue? Will I put him in jail, or is that going to cause more people to riot than if I left him out preaching? And so he leaves him out. He, he's not given, he's not again in prison due to his popularity, having some number of 4,000 parishioners and having established over 30 new congregations. See, that's what the Puritans would do. If they couldn't preach one area, they would just go to the next. So by this time, he has 4,000 people wanting to hear him preach, listening to him regularly. This was the day of, we won't say mega churches, because that's a bad term these days, but there were a lot of people coming to hear these guys preach. And they weren't always just little churches in the middle of nowhere. That's fine. That's, you can be faithful with that as well. But there were also large congregations in London, especially, that would listen to men like this. The Quakers ironically helped him get out of jail the last time. The king wanted a list of men to pardon, and some influential Quakers got Bunyan on the list. Before his death, Bunyan had managed to publish nearly 60 books and tracts, and he dies on a ride to London to resolve a dispute between father and son. He caught a cold, got a fever, and died in 1688. Now I've got to give you some quotes at this point because Bunyan has great quotes. Most of them on prayer. So you can tell what his most influential book other than Pilgrim's Progress was. It's his book on prayer. Prayer will make a man cease from sin or sin will entice a man to cease from prayer. Pray often for prayer is a shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God and a scourge for Satan. He who runs from God in the morning will scarcely find him the rest of the day. And, uh, you know, sometimes we say, yeah, we can pray at night. We can read our Bibles at night. Yeah, we can. But this also proves practically to be true many times. You can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Pray often, for prayer is a shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God, a scourge to Satan. What God says is best is best, though all the men in the world are against it. Wow, this is a good one because there's going to be plenty of times when people say that's wrong. What you believe is wrong. But it's right there in the Bible. He that is down needs fear, no fall. He that is low, no pride. He that is humble ever shall have God to be his guide. So once you're already as low as you can go, you've been humbled, you can't go lower. God is your guide there. This book, the Bible, will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. I really like that quote. You know, you can either read the Bible and it'll help you fight sin, or sin's going to keep you from reading the Bible. Here's what John Owen said. He, John Owen was one of the greatest Puritan theologians, if not the prince of Puritans. And he was asked about John Bunyan, the king said, "The, the king, who sometimes was friendly with the more educated people like John Owen. He, he asked, why does a great scholar like you, Owen, go out to listen to this tinker preach? And Owen said, I would willingly exchange my learning for the tinker's power of touching men's hearts. So John Owen could write theology like nobody's business, but when it came to actually preaching the word to the everyday average citizen, Bunyan could touch their hearts like no other. So here's some books. They've been republished. You can get these in different formats. I like this company. They've made them in paperback so they're more affordable. And They've updated the modern English without changing it too drastically. I was listening to one audiobook on the Pilgrim's Progress. I got it for free, and it totally modernized it. I mean, so much so that it was unrecognizable, and I just couldn't stand it. You need to update the language to make it smooth, but not change the story. So grace abounding to the chief of sinners, a brief account of God's exceeding mercy through Christ to his poor servant, John Bunyan. This is sort of his autobiography of how he came to faith and the struggles that he had. Then there's Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read that, you really should. And then another book, sometimes that's often is, is forgotten, another allegory. It's called The Holy War, made by Shaddai upon Diabolos for the regaining of the metropolis of the world. we read some of that as a family. That's, that's a little more challenging than Pilgrim's Progress, but still some good allegories there, some good illustrations of biblical teaching. As far as his didactic, his teaching material, the book on prayer, I quoted a lot from already. Also, his book on the fear of God is really a good short treatment on the fear of God, something completely lacking in today's Christianity. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. This is a little book on the gospel. And then the acceptable sacrifice, how we are to live our lives for Christ. And so you can already see how readable he is. They have four I think they have more of John Bunyan's in the Puritan paperback series. All right, we're still in the B's and we only have 10 minutes left. All right, Jeremiah Burroughs, 1640, 1600 to 1646. In the, the last few years of his life, he becomes known as the Prince of Preachers in London. He, now later, Spurgeon's going to take that title and keep it. But at this time, Jeremiah Burroughs' preaching makes an impact. He pastored two large congregations, and so sometimes they wanted a Puritan preacher really bad, or they didn't have a preacher, and he could go across town. He's also invited to preach for the House of Commons and the House of Lords. So he's well-recognized during the Puritan time that the Parliament is, is ruling there under Cromwell. He's a member of the Westminster Assembly, borough-sided with the Independents. So most of the people there are a more Presbyterian majority, or they were coming out of the Anglican Church wanting a Presbyterian form of government. There were a few who wanted independent. They didn't want that kind of hierarchy, that kind of denomination, we'll say. They wanted to be an independent church. Uh, But he was more moderate. He didn't want to completely throw the whole thing just because of that. He knew that ecclesiology was important, but it's not the only issue. So he said a good variety of opinion is, is not incompatible to the Westminster Assembly. Burroughs was considered one of the leading Puritans of his time. He was also a prolific and highly esteemed writer, many of his books being published after his death, exposition of Hosea, and probably the one you've heard of, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. This is likely his most famous one. There's another book on contentment I might get to today that I also like, but this is his best. You should read that one, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Jeremiah Burroughs. There's also a little set by Solidaea Gloria, which R.C. Sproul used to run, but I think they sold it to Reformation Heritage Books. Anyway, there's like six volumes in there. Gospel worship, gospel reconciliation, titles like that. But this is a good place to start. Anybody read Rare Jewel? Nobody? All right. Y'all are all content, huh? You don't need this. Stephen Charnock. 1628 to 1680. So some of these guys we'll spend a little less time on, like Burroughs and Charnock. He followed Henry Cromwell, the governor of Ireland, relative of Cromwell, the Lord Protector of England. He preached without notes and was very impactful while he was there those five years. He lost his office during the restoration when Charles II came back and basically kicked out the preachers. He worked as a medical doctor for 15 years. Uh, During these years, he continued to study and write, being a respectable scholar, known for his good understanding of the languages, his piety. He pastored with Thomas Watson at Crosby Hall, London. So here we have more of the scholar. We have a a guy that's a medical doctor. He's got a a big education, large amount of learning here, library. And he really only pastored, what is that, a total of 10 years, five years early on, five years later in his life. But it's his writing. It's a study at home. That becomes important. His work, his only work that was ever published in his own life was a sermon, The Sinfulness and Cure of Evil Thoughts. But his friends at Oxford put together his manuscripts after he died and he put them into two large volumes which are now published in five volumes today. And they're just the works of Stephen Charnock there on the right. But here's the most famous one and the one you should consider reading. The Existence and Attributes of God. The first real textbook that just, from a Puritan anyway, that focuses on the attributes of God. And he's still quoted today. I think John MacArthur has this book as one of the most impactful books on his list and a couple of other famous preachers. I have this document where when people say these are the books that changed my life, I just throw them in the document if I respect that person. And then I see what's, what do they have in common? What do they have in common? And this is usually one that shows up on a lot of people's lists, the existence and attributes of God. It's a big work, though. Frank really likes Charnock. Last spring, he did the Attributes of God class, and he was always quoting from, from Charnock. John Flavel, or Flavel, or Flavel, however you want to say it. I just say Flavel. John Flavel. 1650, he settles in the county of Devon to preach as an assistant to a man named Mr. Walpole. So his time is 1627 to 1691. Then eventually, he settles in Dartmouth. Flavel preached on the Lord's Day. Dartmouth was a place where a lot of the men would live when they weren't out on the ships. And so it was a sailing community, which is interesting because Flavel's one of the Puritans that you might want to start with. He's easier to read. He uses a lot of illustrations, which is good. I'm reading through his volume one of his works right now. But he also includes a lot of Latin and Greek. And I'm thinking, do these sailors understand that? Did they have that kind of education? I'm not sure. That's the thing about the Puritans I'll warn you about. There is some untranslated Latin and a little bit of untranslated Greek, depending on who you read, which tells you that almost everybody who had an education in those days could read Latin and some Greek. It wasn't even an issue. They didn't even have to translate what they were saying. So it's a little harder for us today. I think the Puritan paperbacks have translations for you of the Latin. He preached on the Lord's Day. He becomes the pastor there in town. He's a master of controversy, so he writes issues between the Jews and Christians, Papists and Protestants, Lutherans and Calvinists, Orthodox, the Arminians, and Socinians. Uh, he was also well-read in controversy about church discipline, infant baptism, antinomianism. He's very zealous in the pulpit. He's known for his zeal. He's known for his passion. Think of John Bunyan type of guy here. He's not the scholar who sits in his library, although he's very scholarly. Um, he's very sincere. He has some great little books on living the Christian life and keeping the heart. Upon the execution of the Oxford Act, that's the one that said, not only can you not preach in your church, but you've got to go out, I think it was five miles. Yeah, five miles from any town. You can't be five miles vicinity of any town that you once pastored or preached in. So he leaves Dartmouth. He goes to a little village. Usually they would go just over the five-mile mark. So he goes to Slapton. During his departure, people sorrowed greatly. They followed him out of town. Don't leave. We're going with you. At Slapton, though, he preaches every Lord's Day, and so the people would just travel to see him there. Many times he slipped privately back into Dartmouth to preach and converse with the flock. So he would sneak in and he'd preach. And here's one of these Puritans, and a lot of these guys did this, but particularly Flavel, where the soldiers would show up and they would, they would hide him, they would get him out of there, and then he'd go preach somewhere else that night. Uh, so he preached to the people in the woods, the enemies, the, the police, basically. They broke up the assembly. But Flavor would be carried to another part of the woods and he'd preach there without any disturbance. And there's all these stories where they'll hide the preacher in the haystack to, to keep the police from finding him. And I remember reading one where they take a sword and they stab all this hay and they just barely miss the guy who was hiding in there, the, the preacher. He'd come this close to his head. And he really understood the providence of God after that. During the first indulgence that, that King Charles granted, Flavel comes back to Dartmouth and preached freely to all that would come. Then they took it back, and he made it his business notwithstanding to preach in season and out of season. He seldom missed an opportunity to preach on the Lord's Day. Here's a guy that can get arrested, thrown in jail. And he's like, I don't care. I'm going to preach. And, you know, he didn't stay when they showed up. You know, He took off, but he came back as soon as he could to preach again. When persecution against the nonconformist picked up again, he left to go to London, bigger city. You can hide out better there in churches. In London, though he's captured, he's put back under house arrest in his hometown in Dartmouth. There his flock would visit him every day during the night and on the Lord's day to pray, sing and hear his discourses. He's just preaching from home now. There he remained with his flock until he died. Some books, The Mystery of Providence. Mystery of Providence, very impactful book on God's providence, God's sovereignty, Keeping the Heart, How to Maintain Your Love for God. This is a great book on sanctification. And we all go through sufferings, so better to be prepared for it. So his book on preparations for sufferings. Recommend those three. Flavors a good one to start with. There's two Puritans that are good to start with. Thomas Watson, which we're not going to get to today, because Watson uses a lot of illustrations. And it's not these long Latin-like sentences that go on with John Owen for a whole page, one sentence. These are short They're sermons, and so they've been turned into books. Very easy to start with. Flavel and Watson. All right, last one for this morning. Thomas Goodwin, 1600 to 1679. At 12, he enters Christ College of Cambridge. All these, except for Bunyan, everybody I've covered, goes to Cambridge or Oxford. So if I mention it, it's because they end up staying there teaching. In 1619, by the way, 12 is kind of early even for those days. You might get there at 16 to 18. To go at twelve, that's up there with Jonathan Edwards and and others who are very bright, very intelligent. 1619, he's chosen as a fellow and was made a lecturer. So he gets to teach basically at Cambridge. He gets his master's degree. He gets converted that year. This happens with a lot, even today, of so called Christians. They they think they're saved. You go to this Christian school, you get your master's degree, and then, oh, I'm not even a Christian. He gets saved. 1625, he becomes a licensed preacher at the university. So the university has, even today, chapels. And the students, that's their church. And so he's preaching there. He becomes the vicar of Trinity Chapel there. He's suspected of being an independent. So he has to leave because independent doesn't submit to the Anglican church. If you don't submit to the Anglican church, the king doesn't have any authority over you. So you're out of here. And he says, fine, I'll let Richard Sibbs take over. And Sibs does. Sibbes is another Puritan we'll talk about next Sunday. He moves to London, preaches in an independent congregation. He flees to Holland, where a lot of the Puritans who come to America go. But he comes back, eventually to England. He does meet some other independents there. And these are the, the five dissenting brethren that are independents at the Westminster Assembly. Comes back to London, 1641, as the war starts. He's invited to preach before Parliament. He's chosen as one of the commissioners to the Assembly. He's appointed by Cromwell to be a lecturer at Oxford, and he's made president. Now he'll hang out at Oxford for a while until he gets kicked out there. So I better stop there. But I did get Goodwin works for Christmas this year. My family convinced my mom to buy it for me. And I've been reading some of his sermons that go along with the Romans passages that I come across that he's already preached on. And it's very good. It's very very much more the average preaching style that I would expect from a Bunyan and not necessarily a Goodwin or an Owen. So I've been enjoying it. We'll pick up here next week. Book giveaway. Nobody reminded. me. Nobody wants the glory of Christ by John Owen. We didn't even get to John Owen. Book giveaway. So tell me, raise your hand if you have read zero Puritan books, but you can remember something we talked about last week. Okay. All right. Of you four that were willing to raise your hand, what's the most important thing you've learned in church history so far in this class from back to October? Anybody? Just name something. (laughs) Great schism. All right. You get this, Chad. The glory of Christ. Abridged and made easy to read by RJK Law. So, excellent. I'll give it to you after we pray. Lord, we do thank you for what we've learned this morning. Let us read these works Get into the lives of these men who understood the scriptures. They applied it to their sanctification. Help us to be more godly and more Christ-like. Let us stand on the shoulder of these giants. Let us serve you, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.